I don't know whether it struck you, it struck me as I um, started studying this latter bit of John chapter 1. You've got an extraordinary disjunction between the beginning of John chapter 1 and the end. So at the beginning you've got these, these sublime truths about Jesus, amazing cosmic, eternal statements about Jesus. He is the, the eternal word who was there in the beginning. He, he was made flesh. God has come to, to dwell amongst us in Jesus. We have seen, says John, his glory, the glory of the one and only. In Jesus you see the glory of God. These are, these are, these are big, extraordinary statements. And it goes from those great Great global, eternal statements to what can only be said, said to be sort of almost trivial and prosaic things. You know, the, the, the chapter is going to end with a chap sitting under a fig tree, minding his own business. What's, what's, what's John doing then as um, he records these things? Well, I think. In part, what he's doing is he's showing us how God works. He's shown us these, he's shown us these, these great big truths and then a, a sort of subtext of what he's saying is how are those great big truths going to get worked out and revealed in the world? And those great big truths, he's saying, are going to get going to percolate out into the world through insignificant people and insignificant moments and insignificant places, it seems. But what's happening is actually deeply, deeply significant. That's where God loves to work. God, God loves to do, to do great things through little things. Um, one favourite example of that for, for me is, is um, uh, a tinker called John Bunyan who was completely insignificant even in his own town of Bedford and yet he wrote Pilgrim's Progress which has changed the lives of millions. God loves to do to do ironic things in the way that he works in this world. Here we're going to see local fishermen who are going to be God's vessel for taking the message about Jesus ultimately to the whole world. And the Bunyan story is full of irony as well. Um, uh, John Bunyan was in prison for all of his life. Or for a very large proportion of his life, not all, not, not, not all of his life, he lived within four cramping walls. And yet his book, Pilgrim's Progress, was about the freedom that people find in Christ. And it set people free. Transformed far, far beyond the, the prison. God loves to work through little things, little people. Work in ironic, disproportionate way. And God, God loves to work... Excuse the word, um, but it's a useful one. God loves to work what some people describe as liminally. That is, he loves to work 
from the margins. He always, always has renewed his church, for instance, from the margins. Again and again and again. The great, great Augustine, for instance, one of my favourites, as some of you will know. He, he wasn't at the heart of Roman society. He was out in North Africa in a very provincial place and yet he changed the world. Or Wesley and Whitfield. Yes, in one sense, they were not marginal figures. They were, they were uh, academics at Oxford University but the work that they did was actually amongst the marginal people. They, they transformed the church through miners and labourers. And uh, we're going to see this evening that these are marginal people who Jesus is dealing with. Indeed, the whole nation, Israel, is a marginal nation. It wasn't that significant in Roman society. When it got too much uh, trouble, they crushed it. But it was that marginal group that transformed the world. That's how God works. That's what uh, John is going to be telling us this evening. So let's unpack that a little bit. As we look at a whole range of witnesses to Jesus. The first one that I don't want to dwell on too much but we need to look at him he's John the Baptist um, John the Baptist who is relatively um, significant in, um, uh, in Israel's life and he we have already met him is, is a witness to Jesus actually what you find in verses 19 to 28 that um, uh, Jonathan didn't read, what you find is the most important thing that he wants to say is who he is not. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent, this verse 19, sent priests and Levites to ask who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Very interesting, and John emphasises it. He confessed. He confessed freely. He says it, says it twice. I'm not the Messiah. Who are you then? They say, are you a prophet? Are you They're speculating all sorts, all sorts of things? And uh, he says, I have got an important role, a very important role, to point to the Lord. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, verse 23, I am the, vo- the voice of one calling in the wilderness, Make straight the way for the Lord. Okay? People people who bear witness to God and bear witness to Jesus actually do rise in prominence very often and do get noticed like John the Baptist. And people do start to say, ooh, they're a bit special. What is it about them? Hey, uh, uh, there's something about them that makes the difference. And authentic Christian witness says, no. It's not that I am special. It's Jesus. 
That's what John the Baptist did. That's what uh, the church that follows on from John the Baptist does. And that is very, very important. But that is how Christians live. Uh, Up and down uh, the world, there, there are people doing amazing things in the name of Christ and they get applauded. And an authentic Christian response says, it's not about me. We shouldn't fail to confess and confess freely, as John says. I am not the Messiah. Jesus is. Best thing I can do is point to him. Enough on John the Baptist, because what I want to um, uh, focus on this evening is all of these other um, ordinary people and just see how God then is going to start to work in this world. John in verse uh, 35 um, bears witness again. John was there, John the Baptist, with two of his disciples. Look, he saw Jesus passing by and he said, look the Lamb of God. We've already seen John, uh, John doing that. Look at Jesus, not at me. Look at Jesus. But then, verses 37 to 39, Jesus, uh, John records two other anonymous disciples. I think it's probably um, uh, significant that they're anonymous. They're not important. Have you got the message? They are not important. It's not their greatness, their dignity. It's not that they get recorded in the annals of, uh, uh, of history. It's what they do that's important. And the first thing that John wants to, uh, wants to say is people's lives are changed. The message about Jesus gets out when people just start following him. It's that simple. Did you see? The two disciples heard John say this and they followed Jesus. Um, Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. They don't yet know fully who he is. They're just calling him Rabbi. They're not giving him the exalted titles, for instance, that John has already given him. But they've got that instinct Okay, I want to see you. I want to see where you stay. I want to spend some time with you. And he says, that's great. Come along. And then you will see. It's often, um, uh, often in church circles at the moment, people talk about belonging before believing. That, that, that they say, that people need to belong to the body of Christ, to, to uh, um, be amongst God's people before they can believe. And there are real dangers with that statement because sometimes that can shift over into people belonging without believing. And just because you bo- one belongs to a church doesn't make us a Christian. There has to be a personal commitment to Jesus Christ and the personal acknowledgement of what he has done. That is vitally important. But there are real truths in that statement as well that you find worked out in the Gospels. That 
Disciples, by and large, needed to be around Jesus, hang around him, get to know him, before they could really start to be confident about who he was. And um, Jesus seems to endorse that. Come along, he says. So I say that to people who aren't yet believers. Come along, live alongside Christians, rub shoulders with them, come along to church and hear about Jesus. When, when, when we read the Gospels, in a sense Jesus is saying, come on then, come, come, come in. Come and see me, come and see me interacting with different people. Come and see what makes me tick. Get under my skin. See me and who I really am and then you will know. There's a famous preacher of yesteryear, Martin Lloyd-Jones. People often used to say, well, I've um, I've been coming to your church and I'm not yet a Christian. Um, What do I need to do? And Lloyd-Jones would say, Keep coming. Which is what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? Okay, you come with me. It'll become clear in its own time. Just follow me. So two anonymous disciples then starting to have their lives transformed through just following Jesus. Then, John actually names one of them, and um, talks about um, the, the message spreading in a slightly different way, in terms of telling and being told. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon's brother's, Simon Peter's brother, was one of those two who heard what John had said and who'd followed Jesus. Okay, he's, he's, he's done that bit. This is what he does next. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Andrew heard about what John the Baptist said, Andrew followed, and Andrew went and found his brother and told him, and Andrew brought him to Jesus. Do you see that? There is, a, there is a physical act of following and bringing someone else into the environment of Jesus, and, but there is a verbal act of telling and being told going, going on there. Interestingly then, once, there, once Peter Simon is in the realm of Jesus, something extraordinary happens. Jesus demonstrates his amazing ability. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter, or which when translated again into English is the rock. He is is establishing Jesus here, uh, Peter, as, as, as 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 a foundation stone of the early church. He has seen straight into Peter's heart. Small incidents can have massive effects, yeah? A couple of unnamed people start following a bloke. One of them brings his brother along. The brother becomes the foundation stone of a global movement. Remember um, a pastor friend of mine who was a, he was a very um, 
outspoken atheist as a teenager and uh, there was this man from really a very small, insignificant little church and he himself was um, not that impressive but he was out door to door knocking and he knocked on their family home and mum opened the door and she said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, I'm, I'm, I'm CV but you must talk to my son, he's an atheist. And so um, the son was sort of dragged reluctantly to the door and he confidently opined about why he couldn't believe in God and this little pastor listened to him and said, have you read the Gospels? And there was a sort of collapse of 17-year-old, confident 17-year-old and the chap said, well, look, tell you what, read John's Gospel, read this gospel and then we'll come back I'll talk to you about it next week so he did within a few weeks he was a Christian actually within a few years he was a national leader and had massive influence in this country in the church and around the world because a small, insignificant person decided to go door-to-door knocking one day and met him as a teenager. Or a story from my own. Um, uh, my own life, not quite so, uh, so glorious, but I was on a, on a train um, uh, once, feeling a bit grumpy because I'd got up late and hadn't had a quiet time. And I thought, oh, I'll open my Bible and, have a, and read it on the train down to London. And this woman with a seven-year-old daughter just started pestering me opposite and um, uh, sort of saying, oh, I see you reading the Bible. And I just wanted to read it quietly, to be honest. Um, and um, so, oh, you know, what, that's interesting. What church do you come, go to? And I, you know, I managed to restrain my irritation. Um, uh, but she had to twist my arm to, to uh, come, come to church, to my shame. Um, but she turned up um, next Sunday. Um, and not only did she get converted, but in due time her seven-year-old daughter uh, got converted and uh, worked for um, uh, IFES, the global student movement around the world now. It's amazing. That just started with a rather grumpy 20-something in a, in a railway carriage. Little incidents can have enormous significance in the kingdom of God. Um, treat every moment as deeply significant. And what do we need to be doing? Simply that, in an informal way, and bringing people to Jesus. You just do not know the significance of that conversation you're going to have, that interaction you're going to have. That's what John's telling us. Two fishermen. One of them ends up the foundation of the church. Following, telling and being told. Ah, but then, it doesn't need all of that. 
Sometimes Jesus just steps in on his own and goes and meets people direct. Verse, verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. No intermediaries, nothing else. He wants Philip, he goes and finds him. Actually, my own personal experience, my own conversion was very much along those lines. It was a personal search. Nobody else was involved. It involved uh, me searching earnestly for God, or so I, so I sensed. But to be honest, in retrospect, it was Jesus coming and putting his finger on me and said, saying, come follow me. It doesn't necessarily need any intermediaries. God can do things direct. And then the third element of this that um, or is it a fourth? It's a fourth um, that uh, John brings out here. Philip found Nathanael and told him we have found the one Jesus wrote uh, Moses wrote about in the law about whom the prophets also wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, says Nathanael can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. Dealing with honest doubt is a vitally important part of this process. So often. Here is Nathaniel. He's been schooled in the popular um, law that um, you know, nothing good comes out of uh, Nazareth. You know, no good rugby team We'll come out of Wales again. Or perhaps we're wrong. And um, uh, so he trots that out. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And um, he's not poo-pooed. He's just patiently challenged. Come along and see. And when he comes something extraordinary happens. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching him, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You see, when people come into the environ of Jesus, when people read his word... Again and again, they find that there is stunning insight. There is penetrating truth. There is stuff that makes you say, like Nathaniel, how does he know me? But Jesus is patient with that. He, he's, not, he's not belligerent. He doesn't bash the doors down. Honest doubt is... Uh, an okay thing. Never be afraid of doubt. Yeah? Doubt is a critical mind seeking assurance. Be afraid of unbelief. Now that is a closed mind that will not believe. The opposite of faith 
is unbelief, not doubt. Doubt is a friend of faith because doubt simply says, I want to look at this closer. I want to consider this more carefully. I'm not going to be satisfied with second-hand information or anything that anyone else gives me. I want to think it through for myself. I want to find out for myself. And I'm not going to be satisfied with anything less. And that is a magnificently good thing that Jesus applauds again and again and again. Do not be afraid of honest doubt. In fact, I'll say something to you which you may find controversial and yet which I have said again and again for the last 25 years and I, I have become more confident of it as the years have gone by. No one who sets out honestly to find the real Jesus fails to find him. No one. Now, of course, there are people in this world who've never heard of Jesus. Tragically, they can't find him. And there are plenty of people in this world who are too apathetic to find out about Jesus. And they don't bother, though he is there for them to find. And there are those in this world, and I I have met more of them than I would care to, who are prepared to look for Jesus up to a certain point, but when there comes something that they don't like or they're not really prepared to engage with, then they turn away from Jesus. I often describe that. It feels to me, when I'm dealing with those people, it's like like a bird that's hit a a window. You you see them flying along and then something just stops them. But when you examine it, it's always that it's something that they were not prepared to deal with with Jesus. No one who honestly looks for Jesus fails to find him. No one, ever. Jesus said it actually in John's Gospel. Whoever comes to me, I will not turn away. That is a magnificent promise. A very, very important promise. A deeply valuable one. An honest doubt is not a problem in that situation. Someone asking questions and saying, I want to know more, I want to think that through, is not a problem. Refusing unbelief is. Here's how God spreads his message. Through anonymous people who just set out to follow Jesus and it happens. Through people who tell and are told and chat about it to their friends. Through people who meet Jesus, who has gone out and found them like Philip when they weren't seeking him. Through people who deal with honest doubt. A doubter, you know, um, of the first order was C.S. Lewis. But he had an inquisitive mind. He read G.K. Chesterton when he was a young man and an atheist. 
He wrote um, afterwards, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. But uh, he read him and became increasingly convinced of the reality of God. An honest doubter, you see, will find the reality of God and the reality of Jesus just pressing and pressing and pressing. And Lewis records, you must picture me alone in my room in Magdalen College, just, just half a mile from here, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. That's how he started. He was later, as he put it, surprised by joy discovering the overwhelming joy of knowing God. But here is an honest doubter who could not escape the reality of what he was dealing with. So here are we, insignificant people in an insignificant place with apparently insignificant lives. But you see, no life is insignificant. And Jesus can take those lives and use them for amazing things. We will only be, almost certainly, one of those anonymous disciples, little piece in a vast jigsaw. But what we're involved in is massively significant. We are involved in the Word who was made flesh, displaying His glory to the whole world. But day to day, it'll be you going and talking to your friend. You going and bringing another friend along into a meeting. You hanging around with Christians, with Jesus. Little things are amazingly significant in God's economy. Perhaps something has started even tonight.